Contracting officers are supposed to use small business set-aside contracts if they think at least two small businesses are likely to bid on a request. It's called the rule of two. There's a dispute, though, over whether the rule of two applies to task orders under indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts. Now the Small Business Administration is moving to resolve this question. We get analysis now from Rogers Joseph O'Donnell attorney Stephen Bacon. Mr. Bacon, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. And the problem here is whether that rule applies, you get one answer in the GAO on protest and another answer from the Court of Federal Claims, two completely opposite answers. Is that the issue here? That's right. For for about the last 10 years, GAO has ruled that the rule of two uh, doesn't apply when an agency is awarding a task order under a multiple award IDIQ. But a couple of years ago, in the Tolliver Group decision from the Court of Federal Claims, Judge Salmonson ruled the opposite way and held that the agency does have to apply the rule of two as a threshold matter before they decide which type of contract vehicle to use. So that's important because if a contracting officer can simply avoid the rule of two by going to a multiple award IDIQ vehicle, that obviously has implications for the types of set-aside work that uh, small businesses can be can do. Right. And with more and more types of services being commoditized, open requisitions, open requests are getting a little bit less frequent than use of these large vehicles, correct? That's right. That's right. And so that this kind of this split in the law is becoming even more important. And I think SBA has recognized that. And they've gone on record in prior GAO decisions. Sometimes the GAO, when it involves an issue of small business rules, will ask the SBA to weigh in on the protest to give their interpretation of their own regulations. And in some of those prior GAO cases, the SBA has gone on record and said that it believes that the rule of two should be applied before a decision about which type of contract vehicle to use is made. But GAO has said, well, we disagree with your interpretation of your own regulations, and and that's our opinion. Um, And so now I think what we're seeing is SBA wants to step in and clarify this as a matter of, of regulation. Right. And just a quick question before we get to some of those details. Is there any statutory underpinning for the rule of two that says only mentions, for example, open competition. Yeah. So there's the the ambiguity arises from a 2010 amendment to the Small Business Act, which said that agencies had the discretion to set aside task or delivery orders under a multiple award IDIQ. And that's where the source of the split has come. GAO ruled that, that that amendment to the Small Business Act meant that agencies didn't necessarily have to apply the rule of two before using a task order and the court reached the opposite conclusion, interpreting that specific uh, statutory change. Sure. And do you think that there is an increasing problem with this ambiguity? Because up until now, most of the big IDIQs were either designed for large competitors or they had and they had companion vehicles or next door vehicles that were set aside for small business. But now we're seeing small and large on some of the emerging IDIQs. Right. You're seeing more and more of that where there's these different swim lanes for small businesses and large businesses. Um, and so I, I anticipate that this rule change will address that specifically and how agencies should handle that when applying the rule of two. 
We're speaking with Stephen Bacon. He's an attorney with Rogers Joseph O'Donnell. And let's get into the SBA. What are they changing, and will that help them conform better to the statute as it was changed back then, or what what are they going to do here? So uh, we haven't seen any of the details yet, but we're expecting uh, a proposed rule, I would expect sometime this year, to come out to explain how the SBA wants agencies to apply the rule of two, and specifically, I expect them to essentially codify what the Tolliver Group decision held, which again is that that agencies have to apply that rule of two as a threshold matter, which means that that that, that they have to, before they decide to use, for example, uh, an IDIQ vehicle with um, only large prime contractors, they would have to do uh, market research to determine whether there are two small businesses out there that could, two or more small businesses that could they could do the work. And if they conclude that there are two small businesses that that could compete for the work, then they have to set it aside under under some type of vehicle. And so I anticipate that this rule will will clarify that there are some potential exceptions that could be made. This is still a, a rule that's um, undergoing interagency review and review by OMB uh, as part of that whole process. And so Uh, It's not entirely clear how this rule will shake out in its proposed form. Right. That rule has to go through OIRA first, right? The Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. And they're kind of backed up right now, aren't they, with rules, proposed rules? Uh, I I believe that's typically the case. I don't know exactly what the exact status is right now, but... um... But I, I got the sense in hearing the update uh, where this came from was a regulatory update provided by SBA's uh, Associate General Counsel for Procurement Law, giving an update on their regulatory agenda. And so this is one of the key issues on their agenda that I expect that they would be able to push through uh, sometime this year. Right. So the um, proposed rule itself is actually not out yet. That's right. That's right. So this is not in place yet. And so... You know, until that change is made, you still have this split between GAO and the court on this issue. And did you get the sense that when they come out with a rule, it will be proposed, it won't be interim, for example? I would expect it will be a proposed rule. Uh, I didn't hear anything differently uh, during this regulatory update that I mentioned, and and I would expect they'll want to give industry an opportunity to weigh in. I expect there will be a good amount of interest in this rule in particular. So I guess whether, say, the legal community thinks it's good or bad to clarify this according to how SBA wants to do it depends on whether you represent small businesses or large ones. That's right. I mean, I I think that my expectation would be that large businesses would would be resistant to this because I think if this rule goes through, you're going to see task orders that were formerly performed under IDIQs with large businesses suddenly shifted and set aside to to other vehicles. And so I think that 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 could create some some interesting issues in terms of accelerating this trend that we see towards more mentor-protege joint ventures and things like that, where you see large and and small businesses teaming up to be able to to perform set-aside work. But in general, do you feel it would be better to have this issue clarified than to have protesters shopping different venues for their protests, depending on the particulars of a different case. Sure, I think I think clarity in the law uh, is is always a good thing, and, and particularly in this in the small business realm where you have small companies who who are are trying to compete for set asides and 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 aren't going to be as sophisticated in understanding how all these rules operate and, and work work together. And just to put a period on it, the SBA says it wants to clarify that by 
having it such that you the rule of two would apply to IDIQs. That's right. That's their intent, as it was described uh, to a meeting that I attended where where their regulatory agenda was described. All right. Stephen Bacon is an attorney with Rogers Joseph O'Donnell. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration, came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman with bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look in Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look in Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look in Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story. And two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, 
How has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? 
He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.